0: Good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life. And be grateful that you can't hear what goes on before we go on the air. Holly is on on a
1: roll today.
0: I was going to say, Holly's been on a tear this morning. (laughs) (laughs)
1: You're going to blame me. Well, you're going to blame me, so there you go. Uh, (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, um, a couple announcements. If you missed out on the Michael Morwood webinar, the recording is up on the Ordinary Life website. As a matter of fact, if you go to the website on what they call the landing page, you'll see this picture of um, this woman, Dr. Jackie Lewis, although Holly found a much better picture.
1: That is the picture.
0: That is the one?
1: Yep, she has on this brilliant coat. That seems to go all the way down to the, the one floor.
0: that you have is bigger than that.
1: Yes, that one just this is adjusted to fit into the slide. Okay. Yeah.
0: Sherry and I met, and along with a number of other people in ordinary life, Dr. Jackie Lewis at a mo, at the most recent Richard Rohr conference in Albuquerque, and I was stunned by her um, when. When I say to you that I have been energized by like three people in the last five years and she's one of them, Ilya Delio is one, Michael Morwood is one. And if you heard Ilya and Michael, you know that there's truth in what I tell you about how great she is. Uh, I, I intend, Holly, to go on to the Middle Church website and buy her course on anti-racism before she comes. Ah,
1: oh, I didn't know there, that that was available, you do that's that. great. Yeah, yeah. you could do that. Yeah, yeah.
0: She's amazing, she and I have had a conversation in preparation for her doing the webinar with us. There's no fee for this webinar, all you have to do is just click on the button that says register and you will be sent a link, a Zoom link to the webinar Hang on to that. I think, although we're going to live stream Ordinary Life on the Sunday that she's here as well, I think there will also be a webinar link for Sunday. I think that's true. Yes, yes. So, we're living in strange times.
1: To say the least.
0: Try to speak to some of that. Mm-hmm. We have not set a schedule for our next podcast recording. I noticed that this morning. Okay. Didn't.
1: But they're always released on Thursdays. We have managed to get one out every Thursday morning. So if you're looking for extra podcasts, go to In Between on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it on our website at OrdinaryLife.org. Um,
0: how many have we done? 18. And they say if you make it past?
1: Nine. Nine? Yeah. That you're you're in it.
0: You're going to be famous. (laughs) You're
1: going to be famous.
0: When does the money start coming in?
1: Oh, you know, I've been keeping it all. Okay. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, as long as it's going toward the plane.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Just my seat on the plane. I'm I'm ordering up a massage chair.
0: So I want want to thank uh, Olivia Watson and William Budge and Tim Leatherwood and John Watson for being the people behind the scenes that make this work. If you want to donate, and I keep forgetting to get the offering plate out, but it's not here. All right. It's a pretend offering plate. Yes. Virtual offering, Virtual
1: offering plate. You can go to ordinarylife.org and on every page of our website is a donate button that allows you to be taken to another form where when you fill in that form, you just type ordinary life into the memo. And any money that you contribute to ordinary life goes toward um, both speakers that we've been able to have in this class, like Michael Moorwood, like Jackie Lewis, um, and also to nonprofits in the Houston area and beyond that are helping the, to serve the poor and underserved communities in and around our world. I guess all in our world. But, all in
0: our world. Yeah. That's well, this is good. the point where I ring the bell, mm-hmm. whatever, and uh, say to the people um, who are here, And to all of the pajama people, wine and cheese people, mimosa people, whoever you are, pancake people out there, that no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, I'm so glad that you're part of this today. Holly and I have been speaking using the teachings from Buddhism and now from uh, the Jesus database of teaching as found in the Sermon on the Mount. Things that we hope will be helpful in navigating this unprecedented time that we are in of the coronavirus, of systemic injustice, of threats to what I would call the liberal institutions of democracy or liberal democracy. Um, w- w- it seems that the divisive emotions are increasing and not going away. And, and although there was a concern on the part of some people after the election in 2016 about the stability of our institutions, we had been on a trajectory of hopefulness, um, optimism of one kind or another, either political or economic or scientific, even religious. But since the onset of the pandemic, and certainly since the murder of George Floyd, the mood in the country has shifted dramatically. Anger on both sides, fear on both sides, mistrust on both sides, et cetera, et cetera. There was a burst of enthusiasm uh, around the 17th century in Europe that was dubbed the age of reason, or the enlightenment. And it gave people a great deal of hope about human progress. As a matter of fact, heading into the 19th century, right before World War One, there was a belief in the inevitability of, of human progress, better every year in every way, only going upward and being better. And to be sure, coming out of that enlightenment, we had a lot of gains, a lot of benefits, but time after time, it turned out that we human beings can be unreasonable and cruel and selfish. <clears throat> I have heard Richard Rohr say on more than one occasion, and he has a Germanic background, that it does not make sense to put our faith in education in light of the fact that there was likely no better read or highly educated population than the population of Germany that gave rise to Nazism. In this country, we have lived wrapped up in the prospect of limitless economic growth. And in spite of the benefits that is brought to many, we're seeing the system exposed as one where the the poor get poorer as the rich get richer. We have had periods in history where people put their hopes in some sort of government socialist program of equality and sharing, but we have seen those governments turn tyrannical and oppressive. I have lived through a period of great emphasis on church renewal in this country. Back in the 60s when we had Vatican II, although my roots are not Roman Catholic, I had a lot of friends uh, who were in in that tradition at that time, as a matter of fact, for a while, two years I taught in a Roman Catholic seminary, and uh, many people put their faith in the good things that were coming out of Vatican II, as it was called. And about that same time, in the Protestant church, among progressive Protestant Christians, there was a movement called the Church Renewal Movement. A lot of books were written, a lot of innovative things were happening, particularly in small groups, There was an emphasis on ecumenism, on churches getting together, different faith groups getting together. There used to be a time here in Houston, Texas, when we regularly celebrated in January of every year the week of church unity or Christian unity. That's no more. The institutions and organizations that sponsor those, like the Houston Council of Churches, which grew out of the National Council of Churches, the World Council of Churches, doesn't exist anymore. They're gone. They, and and what remnants are left have no political clout, no credibility. So that era is gone. Um, the pedophile scandal in the Roman Catholic Church and the way it's been handled has been a perfect formula for demoralization and despair Uh, plus the way most Christian organizations have been reluctant to accept the science that is behind the uh, embracing of people of different sexual orientations that's the very thing that keeps my grandchildren away from organized religion and if you look at the absolute lack of political will to address the reality of global warming and climate change, that in itself is enough to make one despair. Now, I want to say that all of this is not doom and gloom. Even more, this time that we are in may provide the perfect crucible for us to learn about, to experience, and to express genuine hope. How do we hope in a time of despair? We're probably going to have to do some deconstructing in order to get into position to build that crucible, and I want these times to contribute to that. I do want these times to be educational as well. I have never lost my enthusiasm for learning new things about the historical and cultural context that created the Christian religion, its documents, its dogmas. I'm fascinated by other religions as well, but the Christian religion, at least one version of it, is the one that was handed to me as well as to everybody else in this country. You just can't escape it where we make national holidays out of Easter and Christmas, getting some notion of the Christian story in your, in your head. Sadly though, for most people, what has been received is a perverted understanding of both Jesus and the religion that seeks to convey his message. As important as offering a corrective to this is, it is more important to me to offer a faith that can overcome any despair that you might have, that defeats any fear that disturbs your peace. We don't need more doctrines. We don't need more beliefs. We need people who can offer the lived experience of those four immeasurables that Holly and I keep talking about loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. There's a famous Benedictine monk by the name of Anselm. He gave us an enduring definition of theology. He said, Theology is faith seeking understanding. The word theology is made up of two words, theos, which means God, and logos, which means words. So theology is words about God, a word about God, or words about God. So if we go with Anselm's definition that theology is faith seeking understanding, what are we seeking understanding for? What are we seeking understanding of? I think one of the problems with the church's theology is that it answers questions no one is asking. What is the theological response to those things that I mentioned at the beginning of this time today? Our despair, our dread, our fear. Now, our theological responses are always going to be contextual. Whole theologies have been constructed that do not reference the political realities and the social justice issues that are in our face and on our plates to deal with. That's one of the things that has become very, very clear since the murder of George Floyd. It should have been apparent before, and maybe it was from like here up, but it wasn't apparent in a way that we were energized to change structures to deal with social injustices and issues of equality. We're in a different and new ball game. I think that people like Iliad Delio and Michael Morewood and others have been telling us that, but we didn't have the lived experience until we saw many of the institutions that we thought were stable to get really quickly destabilized. The writings of the Bible have a historical philosophical literature context. And not to be aware of this, not to take this into consideration when we reference the Bible is a really big mistake. Now, in offering the teachings that we're offering now, like in the Sermon on the Mount, and next Sunday, I'm going to draw a parallel between Moses and Jesus. Moses went up on the mountain and got the Ten Commandments. Jesus went up on the mountain and gave a new set of commandments. And both those are, are parables that we get to. In doing whatever Jesus did that is behind what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus never said, hmm, let me see. I wonder how people in Houston, Texas will interpret this in the year 2020. Never crossed his mind. So when we think that we know exactly what was in the mind of Jesus, we have to put it in the context that we're dealing with right now. I love the way Shelby Spong puts his understanding of the Bible. He says, I treasure the Bible. I live in it and work on it all the time. But it is not the word of God. It's the tribal story of a particular people... And the best thing about that story is that the story keeps growing and evolving. I love that quote. Mm -hmm. That's one of my favorite things. So how do we determine, how do we know what is God's word to and for us? And I'm going to be so bold as to say, and I think Jesus would back me up on this. (laughs) Can't have better backup than Jesus. I'm going to say that God's word to us, God's will for us is what is best for all of us together. What is best for the whole of creation? Now you can find this particular word of God, will of God theology going all the way back to the Hebrew prophets. I'm thinking particularly of Micah, for example, Or Hosea and that's the material that influenced Jesus in in his own teachings so keep in mind this as we trust ourselves to the teaching of Jesus we do so in a particular time we do so in a particular place and as we trust ourselves to the teachings of Jesus the teachings of Jesus trust themselves to us and we have a responsibility to deal with them, to interpret them, to live them in light of this time and this place. So the teaching that we are up to for today is, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Or as Eugene Peterson translated, You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for.
1: You know what? I think in Eugene Peterson's um, interpretation, it says care-full, dash full, F-U-L-L. Unless I misread it, but maybe that's just how I saw it. And, and I love that, that, because careful, when we think of it literally is cautious, or, and it comes with a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of kind of um, step dancing around, right? But care-full, F-U-L-L. F-U-L-L. I love that. Is full of care, right? So what is it? You asked this question. What is it that we imagine we are to care for? And who or what is the recipient of our care? How we care for one another dictates whether that long arc of history bends towards justice. I want to start with this quote. He who wants the world to remain as it is doesn't want it to remain at all. We've heard a lot of that lately, that I just want things to go back to normal. I just want things to go back to the way they were. I don't think we can go back or should go back to the way things were. And we need to redefine how we move forward. Most of us want to look at our lives and feel like over time we've made some sort of progress toward what, one of the most well-known philosophers called the good. They say that um, all of philosophy harkens back to Plato. His philosophy also had a huge influence on early Christianity, and it also amplified a divided or three-tiered universe. It was very focused on an almost ladder-like individual progress, and this age-old philosophical and theological inquiry persisted in what is the good, and where do we find it? As if what is good kind of lies somewhere outside of us, but in actuality it is within, which is, I think, what Jesus taught. What you have within you will transform you, Mm -hmm. right? Plato determined that the good incorporated the pursuit of truth, beauty, and justice. But the problem is we often disagree on what defines these three. I might say that good is spending less of the federal budget on weapons and defense and more on education and healthcare because I value human well being and security. Another person could just as easily say good is spending less money on public programming and more on weapons and defense because they value well being and security. So, what is good gets really confusing. I'm going to boldly suggest, however, that what Jesus meant by what is good is envisioning a world guided by kinship in which truth, beauty and justice were not just ideological pursuits, but required behaviors that were undergirded by the following. And I've talked about this in here before, this idea of autonomy and individuality. A couple weeks ago, we taught a little bit about this beatitude, um, knowing what is ours. I don't think it's healthy or balanced for any one person to take on the care of the whole world for everyone and everything because we would lose ourselves in the process. You do as suggested in the beatitude that we taught about a couple weeks, get blessed when you know just who you are, when you discover what is yours to do in the world. To know thyself is of course among the highest forms of truth and from that place, we can become the most careful. Within or embedded inside of um, this idea, it, our autonomy is embedded inside of the collective. So our individuality matters in as much as it is also connected and integral to the embedded consciousness or embedded collectivity of the entire world. So care begins with the question what is in the highest and best interest? of the most people most of the time. Our individual gifts, I believe, must serve the collective good. We must learn to think in terms of this embedded reality, not, what, not just what is good for me, but what is what is good for me good for most? If it excludes at all, it does not belong to Jesus' teachings. Remember that he was proposing a paradigm shift, a change in worldview backlit by interdependence, justice, and compassion. The third aspect of this is that that when these two are in harmony, when autonomy and embeddedness are in harmony, we have what we call communion or kinship. The church celebrates communion on Sundays, some every Sunday, some once a month like ours, but communion is an integral part to faith or to belief. And so in communion, in my mind, is not just the drinking of the bread and eating of the bread and drinking of the wine, but how do we live in communion with others? Kinship emerges when everyone's individuality thrives in an embedded reality and supports the work of truth and justice on some level. Jesus believed our true nature bent toward love, which fits right into that cosmic evolutionary theory that matter is primed to commune. Matter is primed to come together. This week I rewatched the 2000 film, Pay It Forward. Have you ever seen that? Mm -hmm. It's a good, it's a sweet movie. Um, It has a sad ending. But in it, this little boy is given a social studies assignment to come up with an idea that changes the world and put it into action. And he takes it very seriously. He comes up with this idea of exponential goodness in which small acts can change the world in small ways, thus nudging that elusive arc further towards justice. So what he draws on the board to explain to his class how he's going to proceed is that there's me at the tippy top. And he decides I'm going to show an act of kindness to three people. And those three people that I show an act of kindness to, I'm going to tell them that they need to pay it forward, that they need to each pay it forward to three more people and he keeps drawing and drawing and drawing so that of course exponentially kindness grows. It's not just on his shoulders to grow kindness, but an idea that is exponentially spreading from everyone that he interacts with. And this, this idea takes hold and it sort of becomes a communal, what would be called a meme today, but this was in 2000 before we had memes and, um, and it spreads and, and suddenly people are finding themselves imbibing by this um, act of paying it forward. It's a lovely idea. And as we pay it forward, kinship grows exponentially. In fact, being careful requires in some ways an extreme act of faith in the goodness of people. We may never know the ripple effect of our goodness. In paying it forward, we, we must, as the poet Naomi Shihab Nye writes, learn the tender gravity of kindness. As the deepest thing inside, we must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Kindness and sorrow weave us together. When we touch another's humanity, we restore their dignity and ours. We experience the essence of what Meister Eckhart wrote in the the 1200s, The eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. That's a pretty radical teaching. This is the embedded nature of reality, that everything you perceive is also perceiving you. It imprints itself in you. You know our cells have memory, and our cells are like little holograms of everything that we've ever encountered in our entire life, and now this work is going into epigenetics, how generationally our cells carry memory. And Thich Han also said, as I perceive the moon, so the moon perceives me. In fact, all of life is interconnected, but we fight against this foundational truth all the time.
0: You know, uh, Holly, a couple of things was, uh, listening to you. Um, we one of the things that I hope we're coming to the end of, you know, we started styling these presentations a couple years ago as living in the space between the no longer and the not yet. Mm-hmm. And what, what needs to be no longer is an emphasis on um, some political ideology or some ecclesiastical truth that's going to save us by making us correct Mm-hmm. or by being part of the right group.
1: Yeah, perfection, rightness is not the goal.
0: So that's one thing that I want to say. So if it's not in doctrine and belief, but rather it is truly in being connected more than being correct, where does this come from? Mm-hmm. And the teaching of a mystic like Meister Eckhart or Thich Han. Or Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the teaching is the truth is already in you. Yeah. It's in us, but we fall away from it mm-hmm. by getting seduced into the religion of our culture. Go get some more stuff and you'll right. be happy.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: One of my Buddhist teachers uh, said that uh, believing that getting something more will satisfy you is like taping a picture of a sandwich to your body in the belief it will feed you. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. There's a great article on the, in the Ordinary Life um, Resources menu called uh, The Fall. And it's about the Enneagram. Mm. But it's mm. about how we fall away from this very thing that Holly's been talking about. It's in us. And what we have to do is to have the practice to experience it. I I want you to notice how this teaching that we're dealing with today uh, is reflexive. And what I mean by that is this. When we talked about the beatitude, blessed are the poor, what the poor get is they get to enter the community of empowerment. Or they're the ones who can most benefit from the community of empowerment. Or they're put in a position psychologically and socially where they can trust the community of of empowerment more. The poor get the community of empowerment. The meek inherit the earth. Now what that means is that they inherit that which cannot be bought. So they're in a whole new spiritual economy altogether than the economy of brokered economy that Holly's talked about the, the past, past couple of weeks. But in this beatitude, those who show mercy get exactly what they show. They, they receive mercy in the act of showing mercy. That's what I mean by it being reciprocal. Now, mercy seems to have pretty much evaporated from the landscape of our culture The word mercy is one with a lot of deep meanings. Uh, If you go back, I intended to do this and I just failed to do it. I was going to get out that big book I call a Concordance and look up how many times the word mercy appears in the Hebrew scriptures. A lot, just trust me about that, a lot. And the word mercy in both the Hebrew and the Greek uh, carry such incredible meanings. The word mercy Carries with it the connotations of tenderness, kindness, graciousness, loving kindness, self-giving, unconditional love. And it seems to me that our culture is more and more deprived of these particular qualities. We have the highest number of children living in poverty than in the world's 30 other richest nations. We have the most people in prison, both in terms of percentage and in terms of uh, actual population. We have 5% of the world's population. We have 24% of the world's prisoners.
1: It's important to say also that of those imprisoned, the majority of them are black and brown.
0: You know, um, our prison system is designed in this country to make money.
1: Mm -hmm. It's private business.
0: We have a for-profit prison system. Mm-hmm. So it is in, you know, you get it, get it, what's the religion of our culture? Consumerism. So it is in the best interest of that particular religion's gods to make sure we keep generating the money. Mm-hmm. We watched a documentary last night that I would like to encourage all of you to watch called The Social Dilemma. Mm-hmm. It's about how Facebook makes money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not about connecting you with your friends. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, It is about making money and yeah. the uh, logarithms that they mm-hmm. designed to get you to make money, get money made off of you, mm-hmm. it's scary. Mm-hmm. But the guys on there who are from the tech community in California say what we're chasing is the dollar mm-hmm. and that's, that's what they're going to get. So These qualities that are on the screen right now are the ones that our society seems deprived of. Um, One wonders about the value system and behaviors of a country that makes the kind of statistics that we just shared with you, especially about children, a a possibility. We do not suffer a deprivation of goods in our culture. We, We suffer a deprivation of goodness Wealth abounds for many, but it doesn't abound for all. And the majority for whom it does not abound is growing exponentially. And we've been taught to see ourselves as competing groups. Retaliation is valued more than forgiveness. The love of power is considered way more important than the power of love. <clears throat> there, is more, uh, there, there has been more than one biblical scholar more than one sociologist who has compared the United States now with the Roman Empire during the time Jesus was doing his teachings. Now, whether you agree with that assessment or not, and a lot, and, and there are a number of people who do not, uh, it's certainly true to say that ours is a time of superlatives, and yet, ironically, at the same time, a time of superficiality. What is printed in our newspapers and magazines and what passes for news and information on radio and television is driven more by what will sell, what will grab our attention than what what is truly worthy to pay attention to. One of the shadow types of our culture, and it's one that our religion has contributed to, is the shadow archetype that says there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with you. Uh, If you grew up in an environment that stressed how lost you were without the church or how lost you were without Jesus, you inherited this. And the religion of our culture, consumerism, stresses this. And it's a notion that Jesus never embraced in any shape, or form. Now the only way to overcome this is to take up what I'm going to call spiritual calisthenics and pay very careful attention to what we feed on and to what we are nurtured by and to increase our circle of concern and caring so that as Holly says, we can be full of care, careful full. Uh, It's As we extend this mercy to everyone, beginning with ourselves and including it outward to include everyone, no exceptions, we begin to receive back what we've given away. And I'm going to go so far as to say that until we do this, we don't know who we are. Now, you can listen to talks like this for hours. You can have years of therapy. You can read all the books about personal discovery and growth. This world has to offer, but if we do not learn to experience and express mercy, we still will not know ourselves. The Beatitude says that if we do show mercy, if we love with the love of God that has always been in us, we will experience that mercy that Jesus is talking about. Mm-hmm.
1: We can't give this talk this title and talk about mercy without also talking about Brian Stevenson, right? He is, as you guys now know, one of my living heroes. And um, so, you know, we draw upon his wisdom too in the work that he's doing in the world, which is incredibly merciful. And one of the things that I wanna bring up again is that when, when we care, we draw near to something or someone. I refer again to what Brian Stevenson called getting proximate so when we allow ourselves to get proximate we see not that things are always beautiful or just and more often than not we see that things are more broken than beautiful but witnessing brokenness I think is exactly where our resilience lies I want to be careful because this doesn't mean um, this sort of colloquial Christian teaching that we've taught like you're broken and unworthy therefore you need a savior but But we, those of us who have fallen away from ourselves, which I would say is all of us, those of us that have had some kind of suffering can also understand brokenness. And that brokenness is where our strength is. When we can survive suffering, when we can survive um, uh, a lack of empathy or a lack of justice, we... We grow in empathy and in a feeling of justice, I think.
0: I think this notion of proximity Mm -hmm. may be one of the most valuable things I've gotten from Brian Stevenson. Me
1: me too. Um, We cannot be abstract in our understanding of what suffering is or who needs care. We, We must draw near to it. And he says there's a strength, a power even, in understanding brokenness because embracing our brokenness creates a desire for mercy and perhaps then a corresponding need to show mercy. When you experience mercy, you learn things that are hard to learn otherwise. You see things you can't otherwise see. You hear things you can't otherwise hear. You begin to recognize the humanity that resides in each of us. So in addition to brokenness, I was kind of toying around with the the conditions for mercy And one of them, I think, is faith, which is to say, well, besides brokenness, I just mentioned that one. (laughs) And the second being faith, which is to say a certain letting go of outcomes. So sometimes we show care for someone like the little boy and pay it forward, and we have no idea how it's going to turn out. A stone gets thrown in the water and it sinks to the bottom, and it never sees the ripple effects that it causes on the surface of the water. So in a sense, I think we have to be like a stone, have faith that if we are leading with our values of equity, compassion and justice, that the effects will be felt and they will expand outward. I'll draw again upon proximity. I remember some years ago, Bill, you recommended the movie. I, love that movie. I do, too. I, I loved it. And for a number of years, I watched it every Christmas Eve. As kind I just of my...
0: I just stepped on your when you said the name of it.
1: Oh, what do you mean?
0: I don't think people heard the name of the movie. Oh,
1: <laughs> Joyeux Noël. And I'm probably not saying it with the exact right French a- a- accent, but it is a beautiful film. I
0: own that movie. I do too. Okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you for mentioning it in this class. I think almost 10 years ago. It was a while ago, maybe 15. And it's based on a true story uh, or true events that took place in the trenches during World War I between the Scottish, Germans, and French. I remember being horrified when I was in high school and I learned about trench warfare. These guys lived and killed each other within yards. So there, maybe you can't see William, he's off camera, but the trenches were the distance between me and William, which is what, maybe 20 feet, 25 feet? And dead bodies were scattered in between. The poet Wilfred Owen wrote of No Man's Land, It was like the face of the moon, chaotic, crater-ridden, uninhabitable, awful, the abode of badness. The historian Fran Brearton wrote of men drowning in shell holes already filled with decaying flesh, wounded men, beyond help from behind the wire, dying over a number of days, their cries audible and often unbearable to those in the trenches. In the movie, though, These um, soldiers who were supposed to be killing one another declare a ceasefire on Christmas Eve. They end up singing hymns across across no man's land, and eventually they commune in that space. Once they got proximate, once they shared stories of their lives and their families and their travels, they could not see each other as other. They could not kill each other. They extended the ceasefire And by the time the new year rolled around, every single one of these men got court-martialed because they participated in a radical act of mercy and peace. And we just, our systems don't support this kind of empathy. And the truth is we, meaning humans, are the only ones capable of changing our systems. We do not have to enter a war to get proximate But it is a great example of how once we do, it becomes that much harder to conceive of someone as an enemy or threat. If acts of war can be avoided by proximity. Imagine what else can. If the police, for example, who stormed into Breonna Taylor's apartment and shot her, had they been more careful, and first of all been at the right place at the right time, had they announced themselves, had they turned on a light, or seen her sleeping or looked into her eyes. I don't think they could have fired their weapons. What takes a person so outside of themselves that the first instinct is to kill? Why is it reflexive in our culture to perceive black folks as threats? So that the question we ask when another is killed is not how could we have avoided this, but what did they do wrong? We must examine this. To deny this keeps us separate. It keeps us in what Martin Buber referred to as an I-it relationship. There is a deep fracture in our society and one that we so desperately need to mend. The third condition for mercy is non-judgment and this is maybe the hardest one. I don't mean a lack of accountability or a refusal to take personal responsibility. There are natural consequences to every action. Non-judgment, though, is the basis of restorative uh, restorative justice. It's the basis of mercy because it believes in the idea of redemption. I come back to another principle that Brian Stevenson lives by that I mentioned last week, which is that everyone is better than the worst thing they've done. It doesn't mean they don't have to serve consequences for what they've done. It just means that we live in a way that teaches people how to take res- responsibility and restore their identity. This is hard because it means that I have to believe that as much, I have to believe in redemption as much for the killer as I do for the killed, as much about coyotes as I do for the trafficked, as much about the rapists as I do for the raped. Those in power who are usually the ones with wealth and in our country overwhelmingly white disseminate justice upon those without. Those in power do not often see themselves connected to those without, but feel justified in judging their worth or the outcomes of their lives. All too often we afford those with power, prestige, and position the benefit of the doubt. And social psychology, which you and I have both studied, tells us that it's so common for us to equate wealth with ability and skill. It's just a quality we afford those with wealth. But it's not equated with empathy. Acts of mercy disrupt the power and require seeing the self in the other, believing them worthy of compassion and empathy. What if these were the core of our value systems? What if we lived by these these values? I'm reminded of, of one of my favorite poems and one of my favorite poets. It's on our landing page, on the Ordinary Life landing page. And he writes, the small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. In the Jewish mystical tradition, dropping keys is equivalent to tikkun olam, or world repair. Jesus was among the key droppers. The sages, the powerful, the wealthy, do not have a monopoly on how to distribute justice. Yet so often they are the ones who both control and benefit from the system. Mercy is about using power justly. And so often the greatest acts of mercy come from those who have felt powerless when it should be the other way around. When we do not abuse our power or position, we are being merciful. In so being, we restore the heart of the world.
0: So Holly, I'm wondering, what has happened to us? And what I'm thinking about is, uh, I don't remember exactly, was it 15 years ago that 9-11 was? uh, 19, 19
1: 2001. 19 years ago? Yeah.
0: You know where you were when that happened? I
1: know exactly where I was. I was in bed and I woke up to to NPR And it was the most bizarre moment because the the article or the news story that was happening on NPR was really funny. And it was like the woman who was giving it was actually, she was really entertaining herself. And I woke up listening to this and I was laughing along with it. And then suddenly, a break in the program came. And it says, we've just gotten word that a plane has crashed into the Twin Tower. We don't know what anymore. 30 seconds later, a second interruption that the second Twin Tower had been. So yeah, I remember kind of being stumbling awake and not, you know, we didn't have cell phones with quick access to images yet or quick access to information. So yeah, maybe you didn't ask for that whole story but I remember exactly where I was.
0: So I I was in my office. Mm. At that time, I had an office over, we had an office over on the West Loop. Mm -hmm. And I think I had an appointment at 8 o'clock in the morning, 9. And I opened the door to let the person in that I had a session with. And he said, a plane's just crashed into the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I had a radio in the office. And I think we sat and listened to it. And then we came home. To see those images over until finally they had the good sense to take them down, because little kids were seeing that over and over and over of the plane crashing. I I had to go
1: teach high school students that day, and none of us knew what to do, how to sort of hold that space. It was so confusing.
0: So I remember that happened on a Tuesday.
1: That's a good question. I don't remember the day of the week. Yeah.
0: The next Sunday, when we came to church, there was a standing room only crowd. Mm. People came together after that in a show of solidarity and recovery that was amazing, Mm. really. Mm. Heroes who, first responders in New York and the stories that came out of that, things that people did, just amazing. So 19 years later or so, we we lost three thousand people that day. Mm-hmm. now we're losing three thousand people a day to coronavirus. A day, a day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We we're having a 9/11 every day, and instead of it evoking this quality of mercy, what's it? What it seems to have evoked. I, I know there are many people who are doing peaceful protest and and are doing first line work heroic work in hospitals and caring for people and all that. I'm not discounting that. Mm-hmm. But the, the mood of the country that gets per, put forth on our news media is we have politicized yep. this. We have not shown mercy. We are not showing mercy, I think. And, and it's, it's only impeding us. And I wonder, I'm not trying to be critical. I mean, it could be because you just told me not to be judgmental. And Discernment
1: hope, is different than judgment.
0: <laughs> I, I, I want to I do what you say. But I wonder what's happened to us, to, the, to our character in this time. That really, uh, that really puzzles me that we have veered so far away from coming together, despite our different ideologies. Um,
1: well, there, were, there was fracture in 9-11, too. I mean, dare I say that the response that came after, in terms of two wars, that we are still not completely out of, there was fracture, because we further fractured not just our relationship to one another, but to a different part of the world. That's true. When we needed to heal it. Um, yeah, I mean it's, it's tough to hold because we do tend to get really tribal and, and really stuck in our belief systems when our safety is threatened. And one of the invitations of mercy is to expand our sense of community mm-hmm. when we feel scared.
0: You know, I've been studying the teachings of Jesus for decades.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, approximately, probably seven. Maybe six. A long time. Yeah.
0: A long time. If
1: you want to count your early childhood in terms of how you were inducted into it. Yeah. Oh, probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um,
0: and what I have found over the years is that I don't interpret the teachings of Jesus as much as the teachings of Jesus interpret mm. me. hmm hmm And I don't want any. I don't want anybody to walk away from this feeling worse than they did when they start. When we started, but. I, it really does call me to question about what I bring to the table and how I myself um, show mercy. And I ha- I have to keep in mind that th- the teachings Jesus offered, the stories that he told, really upset people. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm going to say it, you've got to have a strong stomach to handle some of this stuff because it sounds like a nice Sunday school story, be merciful and you will be shown mercy. Well, this is tough teaching.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I, um,
1: it's so appropriate that we're also teaching this as uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are happening, which is the time of atonement.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So I, I, I was reminded of the story as I fully intended to be. Uh, a guru was sitting um, on a hill by a road that led into the city and a traveler came by and he stopped at the guru's place and said tell me what is the city like that I am about to enter and the old guru stroked his beard and thought for a moment and he said well what kind of people were in the city that you left and without hesitation the traveler said well you see that's the reason I'm on the road The people in my city were disgusting. They were always complaining about each other, lying and cheating. I just had to get out of there. And the guru nodded and said, well, I have to tell you, that's exactly what kind of people you're going to find in the city you're heading into. So a little while later, another traveler approached and asked the same question. What kind of people are in this place? And the guru said, what kind of people were in the place that you left? The traveler said, oh, That was my childhood home. Those people were my family. They were nurturing, wonderful people. Sure, we had our problems, but we settled them. Mostly, they were kind, caring, compassionate people. And the guru said, well, that's exactly what you're going to find here. No doubt about it. You see, we do not so much see the world as it is, We see the world as we are. And this beatitude is about the reality of what we give being what we receive. Where our culture teaches us to think me, mine, Jesus teaches us to uh, develop the practice of loving kindness and compassion. The only commandment Jesus gave was love one another as I have loved you. He commanded us to love. He didn't suggest it, didn't say it would be a nice idea. He didn't say when you get your act together, love. (laughs) Or when you've got all your issues about your mother and father settled, love. (laughs) When you've dealt with all your childhood wounds, love. No, the commandment is love. So recently, one of you sent me an email that said, you speak a lot about having a daily spiritual practice. What does that mean? Well, it means lots of things. One of the things it means, and I'm a seven on the Enneagram, so it would mean this for me. It means growing in spiritual literacy. Read this book, please. When the disciple comes of age, try to see where you are in what it says meditate, learn something about how your mind works. And I'm going to offer you a specific spiritual practice that you can put into place this week. I learned it years ago. So we're taught by our society, lessons in competing, controlling, comparing. We're constantly <clears throat> passing judgments on each other and on ourselves. And that creates the illusion of separateness. We put people up or more often than the case, we put people down. So here's a practice that I want to offer you the next time you find yourself complaining about somebody or praising somebody, I want you to add to whatever you say or think the phrase, just like me. So you're driving down a freeway and you see somebody who, in your opinion, is not driving well, and you say, that guy is driving like a jerk, just like me. Or that politician is not trustworthy, just like me. Or so-and-so has absolutely no awareness of the emotional wake they leave in the lives of other people, just like me. We experience the mercy that has surrounded us from the day of our birth, the very day that we can extend loving kindness and compassion to others. Folks, you got to do this. You can't read about it. You can't just hear about it. You can't learn to ride a bicycle in a classroom. You have to go out and get on it and ride and fall and get up and ride and eventually master it. Sadly for most people, what they mean by being Christian resides largely in their brain. Christianity is not a doctrine. It is not a belief that, uh, that what, what that leads to is just separation. The message of Jesus was and is life is good, you're good, you're loved, you're capable. Mercy is not something God does from time to time. Mercy is who God is. Mercy is where we live. And when we extend that, we're just expressing our true identity.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. One of my spiritual practices is reading poetry. And I think it is also yours, part of yours and part of Sherry's. Yes. yes, and um, it's, it is accessible. It's thoughtful. It's often deep. And I've heard Alice Walker say that poetry is born of things that you don't otherwise know how to say. Adrian Rich wrote this poem called Natural Resources. My heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have to cast my lot with those who age after age perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. So how can we reconstitute the world? It is a path of humility and sometimes pain and always mercy. There is a verse later in Matthew that is arguably one of the best known in the whole Bible, which you just alluded to. Love your neighbor. As yourself. But who is your neighbor? The Beatitudes teach us how to be a better neighbor and if we abide by them we would have no need of protesting the justice system or of protesting those who protest. I read a post on social media in response to the grand jury decision on the killing of Breonna Taylor that said you cannot love your neighbor while supporting or accepting systems that crush, exploit, and dehumanize them. You cannot love your neighbor while accepting less for them and their families than you do for you and your own. So, do we really love our neighbors enough to want justice for them? If the system works equitably for all, it does not cease working for you. We cannot have safety and belonging for ourselves at the expense of others. Mercy is not just a feeling of compassion, but an action that shows a refusal to abuse one's power. The etymology of the word care is karu, sorrow, anxiety, and grief. Grief is not possible if we do not care. When we are careful, we allow the sorrows of the world to penetrate us and demand our attention. Karu became the German chara, a wail or lament. And when we care, it is almost a guarantee that our heart will break Maybe over and over and over again. Being careful is allowing ourselves to lament and to wail when injustice occurs. And being careless operates under the delusion that your well being has nothing to do with mine. In choosing careful, we choose world repair. We also choose grief. And I'm big on this because I think grief is the gateway to a deeper empathy. The true measure of our care or our fight for justice is not in how we treat the rich and the powerful or work to keep them rich and powerful. That's status quo. The true measure of our care is how we treat those who have been broken, cast aside, or condemned. That's just. And to reconstitute the world, we must show mercy, just mercy.
0: That's good stuff, what you did. Thanks. That's good. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we will see you here next week.